Hello and welcome to the Talk Nerds Me podcast. In this episode, we release from the Carrick Institute Vault Professor Carrick's discussion on postural control and psychotic eye movements. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good day to you, and we're going to be talking about some very exciting things throughout the entire uh, year of 2010, specific to motor control. And a very, very interesting group of researchers have popped up in the field of neurology around the world, considering uh, whole body responses and things that we do in functional neurology to affect posture, gait, stance, and the positioning of individual joints. A couple of researchers that you're going to be seeing producing a whole load of things are from the, uh, the University of Savoie in France, in the Bourget du Lac, and um, the two ladies by the name of uh, Patrice Rougier and uh, Melanie Gauhin. And they've done some amazing work specifically to looking at postural control mechanisms, the things that you can do to improve it, which has implications, of course, in fall prevention, a variety of other types of things. And what they're able to do is showing that if you uh, do eye movements, particularly saccades or even blinking, that you can change postural control. They did some very elegant experiments and things that you people can start to think of proposing to us so that we can help you uh, with some research for those of you that want to complete the master's degree thesis and other types of activities. Basically, uh, they used uh, in individual groups just 15 healthy individuals and they tested them in a variety of conditions. One thing that they did was they looked at uh, getting the people to blink in certain patterns and then doing saccades in the horizontal directions as well as in the vertical directions. And then what they did is they looked at the center of pressure of an individual that was measured by a force platform and they had the person standing right up in the force platform and found that the center of uh, pressure trajectories could uh, could change when you did a variety of activity that included blinking and uh, different psychotic activities. So they found that regular blinking didn't produce a significant change in postural control, whereas psychotic eye movements does uh, do something for both the uh, center of gravity and the center of posture and center of pressure movements. And this really affected things along the anteroposterior axes. And their conclusions were such that they thought that the theory that ocular movements can modify a postural control in the maintenance of an upright standing posture was very, very uh, important. Now, they were doing some very interesting work, and I think the the main sentiment that you find with researchers around the world now is that the central nervous system commands a whole large number of muscle synergies in order to keep us upright in the Earth's gravitational uh, field. It's a very, very complex system, a system that is majestic and a system that is dependent upon sensory integration into the nervous system. And the sensory integration is from a variety of sensory evoked potentials, not only proprioception, but labyrinthine, otolithic activity, auditory activity, and uh, visual uh, activity. So it's really concluded that the upright stance itself of humankind is really 
the component of a very complex sensory motor phenomena or consequence. When we look at the integrity of the core musculature, when we look at the juxtapositional relationships of joints, this too can be seen as a complex sensory motor task. And to say it differently from a functional perspective, especially those that use manipulative types of procedures, the joint position errors that we see uh, will have a consequence in whole body responses and we can use other motor systems and other sensory systems to change those individual relationships. We know that there's a variety of sensory cues uh, that are very important. Lee and Lishman, way back in the, uh, in the early 70s, talked about visual information and they looked at uh, the importance of vision in maintaining types of, of posture. But we've got different aspects of posture. Posture changes when you're standing on one leg, when you're walking, when you're running, uh, when you have a perturbation. Uh, all of these things are very, very important. Now, when we look at these difficult postures, such as when you're standing on a foot, or if you're doing a tandem gait of a patient in the office, or by the roadside if you're a police officer and you're thinking that somebody may be intoxicated with drugs or alcohol, we know that these types of difficult postures cannot usually be done with the eyes closed for a long period of time. You can do them for a little bit of time, but if you have your eyes closed for a longer period of time, you just can't do that narrow support. You just can't stand on your foot for a whole a load of time. We have a need to fix our eyes on targets, and this need occurs despite any head movement at all. So when you have head movement, you need to have the ability to keep your eyes fixed on an individual target. And if this doesn't work, you're going to have a problem holding yourself erect in the Earth's gravitational field. You may have disturbances of dizziness or a variety of other uh, types of problems. You also can have a problem to position your body and your head in space. So we need to have control of the movement of the globe of our eye, and this control needs to be volitional, and it needs to be reflexogenic. Now, the reflexogenic system largely involves integration in the cerebellum and is involved with activation of the vestibulo-ocular response, whereas the volitional control is largely under control of the frontal lobe and the frontal eye feel. So it's very, very dramatic right up in that executive area. We know that there are many structures in the central nervous system that come from the brain itself, from the cerebral cortex, as well as the brainstem nuclei that are involved in this integration of posture and head and eye movements. And especially we look at the things that happen in the mesencephalon and the pons. And the areas that are important for us to reflect upon in these areas are, of course, the uh, mesencephalic and paramedian pontine reticular formation. These are big for us. The common denominator of both the mesencephalic and paramedian pontine reticular formation are that they're both involved in ocular and postural control and therefore their knowledge and the applications that we can utilize involving with them are just so very very rich for us and they evoke such a robust concomitant of uh, human integrity for our patients. They are really the common denominator and things that we do to affect uh, human position, gait and stance uh, largely are going to be directed toward 
towards those areas. So we're going to have different types of techniques, a mesencephalic techniques such as visual stimulation of moving types of targets, uh, collicular activities, both of targeting of uh, auditory as well as visual types of reality, the pontine concomitants of using sound or interactive metronomes and a variety of other things that we can talk about. So when we look at postural behavior patterns. How does a person react to his or her environment? We know that we've got to know where we are in relationship to the world and where the world is in relationship to we are. It's also very important that we are able to examine our patients by changing the environmental stimulus so that we can see the effects of one uh, sensory motor system to another aspect of sensory integration. So we largely do this clinically with different tests such as the Romberg's test or motor test with the eyes open and closed. So we find that with postural behavior patterns that are observed in darkness, and we can do this by uh, having the room dark, but we can have a night vision sort of thing, and you can buy these little night uh, vision glasses which are really sort of neat because you can observe the patient, you can see their pupils, and, and of course they can't they can't see you. But it's really easy, and of course it's easier if you have the micromedical eye goggles. You can do it in a lit room, but the patient is in darkness. So when the person's in darkness with either their eyes open or closed, uh, we can look at a variety of different postural uh, types of activities. And per, uh, Patrice Rouget did some very, very good work way back in the early two, well, well, not so far way back, but in 2003 or so. And basically, we find that when the eyes remain open compared to when the eyes are closed, we're going to have a different relationships of uh, motor control that would correct movements of your center of gravity. This is so very important for us. It's important as we get older and you may have some visual disturbances. It's important when you develop uh, lesions in your brain that you might not be able to follow something uh, with a pursuit. For instance, you might have psychotic uh, inclusions in your pursuits where your eyes are a little bit jerky when you're following something. You might have a frontal types of a problem or you might have an overactive VOR or a variety of different things. So we want to check the patient with the eyes open uh, compared to what, what they do when their eyes are closed. And then we realize that postural behavior could be linked to a greater or lesser weighting of visual inputs by the central nervous system in relationship to the position of the eyes, if they're open or if they are uh, closed. So when we look at the interaction of the modalities of the environment and the nervous system, we realize that up to the present, there's been not very many investigations into the possibility of interference between blinking and, and postural control. Every one of us blinks, every one of us moves our eyes, but what is the relationship between uh, blinking and eye movement and can we use these therapeutically or can we use this uh, dynamically? We know that there's been a few studies that look at the possibility of interference between the commands of the ocular motor system and the commands of postural control. And the results of early research that was at the, you know, in the 90s and early 2000, 
are, are a little bit contradictory so that when you get clinicians read one paper and if you don't read them all, you can say, boy, this happens and this does this or this happens and this does that and uh, you may be wrong. Well, we know from research of Straub and, and his group in 1989 and Glauber's group in 2005 that there was an observed uh, increase in the center of pressure movements when we looked at ocular commands, whereas Old Black in 1985 and more recently by uh, Stoffergen uh, and, and again Patrice Rouget and Gauin in 2006, they found opposite effects. So some groups are finding an increase in the center of pressure movement with eye uh, movements or activities and other people are finding a decrease. So what the heck is happening? We know that Uchida, way back in 1979, found that even though the periodic saccadic eye movements were, were performed in the dark, that they had a reduction in the swaying movement of the body along that AP axis. So in 79, Uchida found this suggesting that the saccadic eye movements in and of themselves without any other types of contamination and, and thus eye blinking could be the cause of the reduction in sway. And that has some very important concomitants. Does the reduction in sway occur only when the eye movements are going, or might it be transferred that a person could do eye exercises and then stabilize themselves and, for instance, prevent a fall or, or decrease the torsion on their back so they could prevent a back injury or a neck injury? Uh, can we utilize these types of functions in dystonia or a variety of other things? Uh, an interesting study by White in his group in 1980 was such that they were unable to determine any particular effect on posture along the medial-lateral axis when uh, individuals did uh, saccadic eye movements that were volitional, uh, standing on one foot. So when a person is standing on one foot and the eyes are moving along, uh, they didn't find any difference on that medial-lateral uh, axis. Now, again, Uchida found these AP things, but White and all said, hey, when you look at the medial lateral axis, you didn't see too much going on. But interestingly, people don't have that much shifting along the medial lateral axis. Most of the directions of sway are along the AP axis. So White and uh, group did the experiments when they're standing on one foot. They noticed that they had postural changes when the visual surroundings uh, were shifted. And even though the ranges of ocular movement were quite similar in all of these investigations from uh, Uchida, from Straub, all of these people, when you read the, uh, the literature, the results really are, are not contradictory to the original ones by Uchida, but they're not really sort of the same. But here's the deal. The, the fact is, is that when you stand on both legs or one legs, there's... What, what's happening biomechanically, obviously, uh, there's little in common between a two-legged stance and a one-legged stance from a biomechanical point of view. They're a little bit different. So for each of these tasks, the postural control along the medial lateral axes is going to involve different groups of muscles and therefore different types of sensors. So some experiments, when the individuals are standing up on two legs, have been compared to postural responses of standing on one leg, and you basically just can't do it. You, you, you're going to be looking at different things because of the different groups of muscles and different feedbacks. One of the 
consequences that we see when we examine people and get them to stand on one leg is that it's it's harder to do that than standing on both legs. And the same thing occurs when we ask people to do the tandem Romberg test. And that tandem uh, Romberg test is um, when we look at that uh, heel to toe stance. And this was pioneered by Glaussauer uh, in 2005. So when we look at the individual stance of an individual person or something that happens throughout that gait uh, pattern, we know that the proprioceptive information that is issued from the mechanoreceptors of the ocular muscles, we know that this mechanoreceptor information or integration can greatly disturb postural control. And we know this uh, because of the effects of uh, vibrator uh, stimulus, uh, stimulus. And we've known this since the late 80s with the work of roll and uh, roll. So that when we look at these vibrator activities, we find that this postural information can be jumbled up a little bit. So we've got different types of a methodology now that uses computerized dynamic uh, posturographic plates that really give us a whole load of information. So it's not so very difficult to put people on a force plate, measure their activity with their eyes open, with their eyes closed, with their head turned to the right or turned to the left or on both legs or on one leg and get them to do different activities, whether it be complex movements of the arm or whether it be activities of the eye or, or other types of things. And that is exactly what um, Rouget and Garon did in their individual uh, study. Uh, they put someone on a... Uh, on a force plate such as a CAPS or a Bertek or the Schenkel types of scales and they looked at the individual displacements and looked at it from a biomechanical concomitant by measuring the center of pressure and the center of gravity and then uh, having the person do different dynamic uh, things. So they were able to assess the vertical projection of the center of gravity movements and when they were able to assess those they could also look at the resulting postural performance of course and then what they did is they looked at their plane of support which was basically the center of pressure or center of gravity which would correspond to the horizontal acceleration that was then communicated to the center of gravity and thus the neuromuscular activation of the muscles, of course, in the lower limb. And uh, Patrice Rouget published information on that neuromuscular integration back in 2001. So we know pretty well how to do that types of activities. Or to say it differently, when you're standing up on a force plate and you have different shifts in your center of pressure, whether there's a perturbation in the environment or whether you're looking in one way or the other, that perturbation causes activation of joint mechanoreceptors as well as labyrinthine activity and, and other types of things, which will affect the neuromuscular activity, not only of the trunk muscles, but of the lower limbs as well. So what's interesting for clinicians is to say, hey, what happens when you have any eye movements in regards to whole uh, body responses? And what uh, Rouget and Garon did was they had the patients give just small little eye movements, not really big ones, and they gave them saccadic eye movements, which were very quick in the vertical and horizontal plane, and they gave the saccadic eye movements in an amplitude that would reflect the the same type of movement that would occur 
uh, during blinking. So when you blink your eyes, you're going to have a, a movement, uh, and that movement is, is around 5 degrees. So just using a saccade of 5 degrees, that's not very, very much. They were able to see some amazing, amazing things. And basically, when you look at a 5-degree saccade, that small little angle in the direction of gaze really occurs in most people without rotation of the head. And this is important clinically because if you do a saccade that is very small in amplitude, you're not going to have a great proprioceptive concomitant. Whereas if your saccade is larger, oftentimes you will move the head in order to uh, maintain the fixation of the globe of your eye in a certain individual uh, direction. So small amplitudes, less demand on the proprioceptive system. You know that that can have some therapeutic consequences if you don't want the neck muscles to be activated so much, such as in a person that has uh, dystonia or a variety of other things that you might want to not evoke so very, very much. And again, Rouget uh, did this work in 2000 and is... Um, fairly well known for that type of uh, type of effect. Well, in in their most recent experiments, they looked at patients and they said, hey, we'll examine them. We don't want anyone with a visual problem and we don't want someone that's falling down. We want people that can stand up that are pretty darn healthy. They're not overweight. They're not underweight. They're just, you know, cool, young people between the ages of 21 and uh, 43 so that we can find out what happens in in the normal type of population. And they had people take their, their shoes off. I think it's very important to measure people without their shoes. And then you can have a basis by which you can compare what happens when you measure them with their shoes. And you say, hey, is this footwear good for you? Or does this footwear change your center of pressure? Does it make you more stable? Does it make you less stable? Are there changes in your respiratory rates? Are there changes in a variety of, uh, of things? Uh, they had people stand with their feet turning out at an ankle of 30 degrees and their heels three centimeters apart. They like to do this so they can duplicate their experiments. And they want people to keep their arms at their sides and say, hey, don't sway. You might stand as still as you can, almost be a rock. And then, of course, they amplified the, the signals and converted them into uh, a nice computerized uh, program and processed and analyzed the resultant center of uh, pressure. And they looked at a coordinate system that basically looked at sway going from side to side or front to back. So they were able to look at um, the mediolateral mean type of direction of all these people as well as the anteroposterior mean axes uh, respectfully. And then what they did is they did a, a few different uh, experimental conditions. They used four of them and they did them successfully uh, but they also uh, did them randomly so the people were, were not ready to, to practice them. They did the uh, open eye a condition where patients were asked to stare at a spot that was one centimeter in diameter held two meters in front of them and basically the surroundings were a white wall in which the targets were stuck very important when you do these things to to just to, to understand what you're doing if you have a red wall or a blue wall you're going to have a different reaction than a white wall so for uh, therapeutic processes, you can look at the effects that color would do on a patient or non-color. Then they looked at the blinking condition where the patients had to blink both eyes uh, at a frequency that was imposed by a metronome of one hertz. So every second, bump, bump, 
Bump. And then they were asked to give uh, vertical saccades or horizontal uh, saccadic eye movements. And the movements were, again, uh, directed by a metronome that was beating at one hertz. Really important, when you have a, an auditory signal, the people can can do things you know a lot more more accurately. You can measure to see if they have a latency or not. For those of you that are certified with the interactive metronome, you can see how wonderfully exciting this might uh, be. Well, the principle they thought for the psychotic eye conditions is that the patients that you see are going to coincide, they're looking at the targets with the beat of the metronome. Now, the distance between the pairs of the targets was only uh, 17.6 centimeters in this experiment. They wanted to force angular saccadic eye movements of only five degrees. And we know that the entire human body itself, or what you perceive your body is, can be really a vector of gaze displacement. So that their subjects were instructed to perform either the blinks or saccadic eye movements without any accompanying head movements. They didn't want that proprioceptive activity, so they looked at the patients. If they moved their heads, they, were, they weren't spanked, but they were told, okay, can't do that, you have to do it again. So any time they suspected a head movement, they threw out the data and they made these people do it over and over again. So you can use these activities too. For instance, if you're looking clinically at an individual doing a saccade to the target and they're hypometric, you already know that you're going to give them therapies that will involve a saccade to the target with a head movement to the other side. Why? If I've got a hypometric saccade to the right, I'm going to look to the right and turn my head to the left at the same time, and my turning my head to the left evokes a VOR on the left that drives the eyes to the right, and it increases the oomph and accuracy of the hypometric movement. If, however, I overshoot the target, for instance, with a saccade to the right, then I would do the saccade to the right and turn my head to the same side so that I would have a VOR from the right side that's going to dampen my eyes from overshooting. So what's the key? Hypermetria, saccades, and head movement to the same side. Hypometria of saccades, the saccade to one side and the head movement to the other side. And the smaller uh, amplitude of the saccades and head movements, the better therapeutically. But already, you know how to treat a whole load of things. It is uh, very, very common to have individuals with hypometric saccades. We want to treat those. Those are not cool. Hypermetric saccades are really not cool, but treat them all. And you're going to find great differences, not only in the visual axis, but on core muscles and a variety of other types of things. The amplitudes of the saccadic eye movements were not seen by uh, Huge and Garin in a 2006 paper to significantly influence the postural changes. So you can really get away with doing small ones, and small ones are more accurate. Uh, they did trials uh, where they looked at uh, five times they would do an activity of, of individual uh, movements and they would look at a 64 hertz sample frequency, they give them a rest and then they'd allow another trial. So they were doing like 32 uh, eye movements. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's a fair amount, right? So when they looked at the estimation of the different types of effects, they found that they had displacements of the center of pressure which appeared to all the center of gravity uh, in a variety of ways. And they 
they divided the uh, center of gravity and the center of pressure center of gravity movements into basic components where they looked at the swaying movements of the body they looked at movements that would be increased or decreased and they found that if the swaying movements of, bo of the body were reduced that the height of the center of gravity would be uh, you know pretty constant and, and it wouldn't be uh, disturbed so <clears throat> they did a variety of things that looked at uh, the center of gravity and they developed some pretty wild formulas and they looked at a fast Fourier transformation and and some pretty impressive math which can be interesting to the biomechanical engineers, but for you clinicians, hey, what does it mean? What does it mean to me? Forget about the individual uh, frequencies. So basically, if you take away all the math, they wanted to look at the contribution of each of the basic eye movements to complex center of pressure trajectories so that we can look at that and extrapolate it for clinical types of types of effects. So they wanted to look at the effects of blinking and psychotic eye movements with the reference condition. They did a one-way analysis of variance at ANOVA and uh, did their little post hoc analyses and found uh, by setting the level of significance at less than 0.05 that they would have something to, uh, to really help uh, people. So um, they found that blinking or saccades would modify the postural control organization. That's marvelous. Uh, you can make it better, you can make it worse. And they found that the, the, the basic movements in terms of amplitude and frequency are affected by the various eye uh, movement tasks. Now, since the difference in amplitudes would vary as a function of the movement frequency, uh, some of the differences were observed in the median frequency. For instance, the movements appear that there's a statistically significant effect along the anteroposterior axis, and that uh, anteroposterior axis is going to have a greater uh, effect, or you'll have a greater effect on that than you will on the medial lateral axis. And this is important because most people are going to fall backwards uh, along an AP type of activity. So we have modifications of the center of pressure and center of gravity, uh, the stability of a patient when you blink or you do psychotic eye movements. And when a person blinks or, or, or has psychotic eye movements, uh, the diminished amplitudes of movement of that center of pressure or center of gravity is really along the anteroposterior axis uh, only. And this occurs uh, both when you're standing on both legs or even on, on one leg. So very, very interesting types of, of, uh, of activities. And really neat for you to be able to look at individual saccades that you can prescribe to your patients to, to make them a little more uh, stable. So when we look at people that are unstable, people that have increased amounts of sway or people that may get a little bit dizzy or have a problem in a Romberg uh, position, we'll find that you can give them saccades to stabilize them. We know that when they're standing in the Romberg tandem position that the abductor and hip muscles are prevented from controlling balance along the medial longitudinal axes, and therefore the person is going to have less, less efficient everter, inverter, ankle muscles. You got big problems with that. You're going to give them everter, ankle muscle types of uh, types of exercises. We know 
that it's very important to to look at the direction of the saccades in relationship to the hemisphericity of an individual person. So even though you can increase stability by looking with the saccade to the right or the left, you really want to isolate the integrity of the person's brain. If they've got a decreased left brain, get them to look only to the right. Don't do the left side. In other words, use the saccadic mechanism, but use it opposite to the side of the decreased uh, brain activity and control the amplitudes of the individual uh, center of gravity. When you look at the therapeutic application, you don't need to give them big amplitude saccades. As a matter of fact, it's contraindicated, which means to say you want to give them short saccades to small uh, little targets, and you want to give them a frequency that's low enough to allow the person to take information from their visual environment and change their their cortical maps. It's going to be very, very uh, interesting. Uh, we know that individuals can can even increase their balance in darkness if they do saccadic eye movements. Well, this is very, very important because when people become a little bit unsure in the nighttime, you may say, hey, you know, before you go out in the nighttime, we want you to do some saccadic eye exercise and get yourself a little bit uh, more uh, stable. So some very exciting types of effects are important. It is important to give the person a little target in front of their eyes to limit the saccadic eye movements. You want to uh, really do some things that are going to be in concert with their humanism and get on with it. So uh, I really like reading uh, Rouget and Garin, and you can you know search them. They've got a whole load of stuff coming out. But really, they're telling us things that you're doing uh, in your science and application. So you really should should know um, a lot about them so that you can really help people and do just a variety of things. Hey, we're going to continue with this. I really love this area. Thanks for asking me to speak about it. And uh, don't get shy. If you want me to talk about something, just give me a holler. Thanks so much. Take good care. I'll see you next week. Or actually, you'll be listening to me next week. I won't be seeing you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on CarrickInstitute.com.